Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Steve Frazier, a 20-year former VP at Amazon. If you missed it, go back and check out the last episode where Steve shares various examples from his time leading international expansions and marketplaces for Amazon and offers advice for how businesses should think about expanding internationally. We'll now jump back into the conversation. Amazon captures a lot of data, but I think one of the challenging things is knowing how to use that data and where to focus with the data. As you moved to these different roles, how did you identify what data to focus your team's attention on? The first thing is copy. If you're an inherently lazy person, copy and steal as many ideas as you can from other teams. And I know that sounds simple, but a couple of times with new teams, I found we'd work so hard to the launch and we knew the week we launched, we'd have a PR release and a party, and then we could get to work running the business. And a couple of times I found we were a little slow just putting the metrics together because it is a project. It could be a harder project. And oh, we're doing so little business the first few weeks. It doesn't really matter. I found it much more helpful with new businesses to grab a WBR deck, a weekly business review deck. Even if you're a tiny business, go grab another team's 60-page WBR deck and start to mock up what your deck is going to look like. And in the first week, three pages might say complete and 47 pages saying do next week or whatever. But that discipline of act like a big business, even when you're a small business, and, and I don't mean bureaucracy and process, but just understand even on week one, you're going to be expected to have a full set of metrics. You're going to want to understand your business. You might as well make that part of your launch plan is to make sure you're ready. And, and it could take a couple months before you've got all 50 pages filled out, but it's more the discipline of being ready. And the second thing is live the created Amazon. I know other guests have talked about is focus on the inputs, not the outputs, especially in early businesses. But to be honest, you don't have a clue. Like, I can't tell you how many times I missed plans on new businesses by huge percentages. And I am thankful to say that my managers most of the time understood that it was really hard to forecast the first two months or first year of a new business. But we were still pretty rigorous about focusing on the inputs. Because on week three of a new business, you really can't do much about the fact that you're 80% behind plan or 80% ahead of plan. But what you should be focusing on is, do you understand the inputs? What happened last week? And what are the key inputs you should be focusing on this week? And, and how are you measuring customer response? How are you measuring traffic? How are you measuring conversion? How are you measuring your selection, your pricing, all those core basics? I would say time after time, it's those inputs you've got to get right before you move on to more creative ways of looking at the business. I think that segues really well into another question I had, which is having been in all of these businesses and those WBR processes and meetings, what were some of the most important inputs or metrics that Amazon either created or used to really get a handle on the business and help Amazon grow? 
As I look back, I think about two. This will make me an old timer because these aren't new. And I know there's much newer, more sophisticated ways of measuring the business today. But first of all, Amazon did have really good disciplined financial reporting. And the key in particular was contribution profit, which is Amazon's term for measuring the actual profitability of each individual product you sell. And that started out crude and an estimate, but even then it was useful and it got better and better over the year and more proactive, but understanding contribution profit and then backing up to understand the inputs that drove that is super important. The one that I think was magical, though, to Amazon's expansion was fast track in-stock glance views. And... I think that's one of the most important metrics that was developed. And I still don't know exactly who invented that term or that metric or first thought of it. But I would give Jeff Wilkie, who was then head of retail, the credit for driving that as the North Star for what the category teams were chasing from 2005-ish forward. And just to explain what that is to your listeners, Amazon can sell a lot of things, but it might be available from a third-party vendor or a dropshipper or whatever. But in stock means it's in an Amazon facility where Amazon has the most visibility to the current availability of that inventory. Fast track means the product's actually in a location where it can be picked in a few hours. Now, this definition has changed over time, but there's a, a specific definition of what fast track means. So fast track in stock means it's there. Amazon has it in its arms and can ship it really fast once an order arrives. The glance view part is you're measuring what customers are looking at. The traditional retailers, you might know how much out of stock did we have yesterday or today, but you don't really know whether customers cared. Amazon knows whether customers cares because it knows exactly what customers are looking at minute by minute. So when you combine those fast track in stock, you're actually measuring your entire team's execution excellence in delivering what customer wants right away. Then on top of that, you can add various flavors to fast track in stock. If you're launching something like Prime, what's our two-day fast track in stock? So what are customers looking at that if they're Prime members, we can get them in two days? And then on top of that, you can say one day and next day. And so you can start to add even finer filters to that in stock number. One reason that I think that's such an important metric is I think that helped make Prime successful by getting all the teams focused on that. Two, it made everybody really understand what the value of uh, FBA or fulfillment by Amazon would be, that when you get third parties in the warehouses combining with Amazon retail, making that all work together and driving up fast track in stock was super important. And then as you decompose it to all the things you have to do to drive that number up, it drives lots of change all the way through the supply chain all the way back to the way you talk to vendors, the way vendors interface with the system, the way sellers work. And so going after that as a North Star, I think was super important. And I'll also go on record as when Wilkie introduced this and started setting targets for everybody. I remember arguing with Jeff, I thought pretty forcefully that I thought the targets for my categories were completely wrong. That in theory, he was right, that Fast Track was really good, but my category should have much lower targets because there's no way we could ever get anywhere close to the numbers that he was expecting. Of course, I was completely wrong because several years later, it was a lot of work. Those categories blew past the initial numbers that uh, Wilkie set for them. In pushing back on that initial number, was that because at the time you were managing categories that were heavy and bulky and hard to keep 
pickable in a short amount of time? Or what was it that made you question that initially? A, I was probably lazy. B, as I remember at that time, I was particularly launching some categories that had really vast selections. So in industrial supplies and in auto parts, those are enormous selections. And also apparel has a really big selection and and their numbers were like mine too. And I, I just had this thought that the concept was brilliant. And in categories where the head selection was going to be really dominant, it made a world of sense. And it was very useful for my categories. I just couldn't see we'd get anywhere close to the number he was throwing out. I just couldn't quite see it. I just thought that as we grew, we would get more selection to the most popular products, but also we'd get more and more people shopping at all the unpopular products. And so for every step I took forward, I would take two steps backwards. And I wanted a special note from Jeff Wilkie saying I was excused from the goal and I did not get the note. And it's really good that he did not write me the note because they did go on to prove that it was a good path to be on. I'm sure a lot of customers can thank you for accepting that lofty goal, focus on fast track in stock, even daunting as it was in those long tail categories. I love this example that you shared, Steve, of this metric and its importance and its uniqueness, at least at the time within Amazon. How do you help other leaders in thinking about identifying the inputs of their business that matter most? I don't know that I have a magic answer to that. I I do, though, think that discipline is important. It's just stopping yourself and saying, what are the most important inputs? Okay, let's build the logic tree here. It's really just a logic tree. And what drives this? What drives that? How do I think my way through the process? People know it once you start to drive through the process. And in most cases, I would say good business people who have reasonable businesses already have 80% of this. It's just structuring your thoughts about why it's important. And I've seen where sometimes it makes senior management more appreciative of the stuff that the people, their teams are working on. And you get that, oh, this is super important. And I, I need to highlight and bring that out and give that team more support to bring that about. By the way, it's not that outputs aren't important, but even if you're Number one, true, deep in your heart concern is the output, and it's your profitability or your top line or whatever. You can absorb that in five minutes. You can look at your financial statements in five minutes and understand whether you're happy or not. And the question is, what are you going to do with the rest of your day? Are you going to spend all day staring at your P&L or encouraging your team to make more profit or berating your team for not making enough profit? That's not really a good use of your time. And so if you've got the inputs, you can really double down on the successes and go correct the defects, but you have to know what those defects are. I I don't have a perfect formula for how you get it. I found it's a structured process of working through the logic of which inputs are going to drive the outputs to where the standard should be. A couple of times I've asked people, if we get this right and you get a couple spreadsheets filled with the right inputs, You should be able to drop that with your team and you leave for a couple months and nobody looks at a P&L for two months. Are you comfortable you've written the right inputs that if everybody executed everything on those spreadsheets, you'd be super happy with what the P&L looks like in two months? That's to me the bar to set for having the right set of inputs. That's a very insightful answer. I like that it's connecting the result that you want with the actions And even when you can take your eye momentarily off the outputs and know that you're still driving the business forward with those inputs, I find that really empowering. And maybe it's 
not that you need to invent new inputs, but rather you need to understand what the inputs already are in the business and have the right visibility and attention on those so that you're managing by them versus just looking at the P&L and staring at that alone. Right. And what it does over time is it helps you find the successes you want to double down on. It also helps you find the problems. And I will say in particular at Amazon, Amazon is a very defect-oriented culture. People celebrate success, but those are kind of short celebrations. And they let spend the rest of the time talking about the defects. And I noticed that my first week at Amazon, I'd been an Amazon customer and a happy customer before I joined Amazon. That's one thing that made me think this was my dream job. And the first big WBR I went to, they were looking at customer service metrics. And I was blown away with how good they were. And they were immediately focusing on why they were like 20 basis points last week lower than what they should have been. And then immediately the discussion was, what went wrong last week that we missed it by 20 basis points? And I was like, wait, these numbers are incredible. And, and why isn't anybody saying these numbers are incredible? But that was the culture. They weren't perfect. There was a little bit of defect. And there's just a focus on how do we remove the defects? How do we remove the constraints so this thing can keep growing and, and eventually make money? I heard Bezos say something paraphrasing that customers are always going to be discontent. And the defect focus within Amazon reflects that. If, if you're always discontent with what the defects are in your business, then that's going to serve customers by, by fixing those issues and, and focusing on those opportunities. Yeah. You do have to be careful. I do think if you are in that kind of culture, you have to warn your teams that's the culture. And I would just try to tell people understand, even though we had a great week, we're going to spend a minute in celebration and 59 minutes chasing what we could have fixed. And hopefully people realize that what we were there for is to fix things and make them bigger. The flip side is sometimes you can get lost if you're not looking for successes. And sometimes I would tell teams, let's go find the future. Like at Amazon Business, if you had a goal for someday, we're going to serve bigger enterprises and big businesses with lots of spending and multiple customers and buying from multiple locations. That's really hard to do. Amazon's doing a great job of it. But if you're looking for that, when you launch a new country, you may feel like you're years away from doing that. Well, let's go find the future. Do we have one customer who sort of behaves like that or two customers who are starting to behave like what we want to be in five years? And if we could start to tease out from the data where we may not be happy with the averages and culturally everybody's focused on the problems, but can we find a few successes and make sure we understand we know what makes them work? Because if we know what's making the successes work, we can double down and help other customers find that as well. And I found that true in Amazon business. I think another place it was true is in sellers. When you were thinking about the marketplace and you're bringing on new categories and bringing on new sellers, understanding why your top 10 sellers or your top 20 sellers or your top 40 sellers have achieved some success. A, as you get to know them, you're going to fix whatever problems they're having that would make them even more successful. But also, what are the lessons and what are the tools they're taking advantage of that other sellers could be taking advantage of as well? That's a fantastic point. I think any business could learn from looking at the outliers and those that are doing the best and thinking about, okay, what are they doing that's different from everybody else? So I love that. As we wrap up here, Steve, I do want to come back and ask about your background as a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal. That's something that's a bit unique. And I'm just curious to know, did that early experience in your career 
influence your leadership or the perspective you took to being a business leader later at Amazon? I guess a couple of things. Part of that time was as a foreign correspondent. I'd lived in Mexico City for three years and I reported a lot in Central America. I think those kinds of experiences help just broaden your perspective, makes you realize that there's other places and other ways of thinking and other ways of acting and growing up where you do, wherever you grow up, learning different perspectives is important. Secondly, as somebody who'd written for a living, I was super happy the day the memo went out that we were supposed to stop using PowerPoint. I think I publicly burned a laptop just in celebration that I didn't have to use PowerPoint anymore. But third, often people would say, you're used to be a reporter. You must love writing these written documents. First, most reporters love to report. They don't like to write. And I really would not hold myself up as one of the stellar writers at Amazon. There was a lot of people who were really good writers. And I was always, frankly, blown away by all the people at Amazon who were writing in English as a second language, who were really good and really thoughtful in the way they wrote. But I do think that one of the things that reporters learn is learn and be curious. That's what you're trained to do to be a reporter before you start writing is just go out and get the facts, dive very deep for facts. I think reporters start with a bias that the truth is knowable. And if I just work hard enough, I can go find the facts and I can go get the data and I can go get this somewhere. As a reporter, you're always thinking, I got to go find a source or a public record or a legal filing somewhere that's going to tell me that. And if you carry that culture over, I maybe was a little more willing to uncover rocks because I started with the bias that you could get the facts. And then I think the other thing you learn as a reporter is that individuals and people have perspectives and will convey data or convey opinions in a way based on their own learned experience. And it may not be the ultimate truth. So (laughs) reporters are very used to talking to people with very disparate opinions, collecting the information and holding it in short-term memory while they go collect other facts and then put the whole thing together and say, okay, now I think I know what to say. I think I know what I know. I think I know what's under debate. And I think I know there's still more information to get. And occasionally I would see really smart people who would go talk to other really smart people, collect a fact or collect an information and, and assume that was the truth. And then sometimes push yourself back and say, look, when you talk to the marketing function and got this concept of how important the advertising budget is for next year, do you think that's the whole story? Or maybe you should also talk to this other person who in operations, who actually has another opinion about how to spend our money and the person in finance who has another opinion. So making sure that you get the full picture to the degree possible without being terribly slow about it, I think that's a thing that good journalists learn. Those are fantastic skills. And I can certainly see how having experience developing some of those muscles early really helped in launching new markets new businesses, new programs at Amazon, where you also had to learn to be curious, dig deep, find those answers. So thanks for entertaining me on that. Again, been really fascinating learning from your experience and these skills and insights and mental models that you use in your time at Amazon. As we wrap things up, is there anywhere you would send listeners if, if they want to follow you or learn a little bit more from your perspective? I'm not really doing a lot of public speaking or talking or blogging or anything. I've got a LinkedIn profile. And if I do something new, you'll see something pop up on there. If you want to actually find me, hopefully I'm out on my bike most days. And so you can find me on a bike. I'm the slow guy. And so you'll probably pass me before you recognize me. (laughs) 
Thanks again, Steve. It's been great having you on the show. An incredible career at Amazon. You've been involved in some very interesting milestones and you've had some very interesting thoughts and insights to share with us. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. 